one million years BC, when the earth parted and the mountains fell. Welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacies of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions, so this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. My name is Connor Heaney and I'm the collections manager with the foundation and I'm joined once more by trustee John Walsh. How are you John? Hi Connor, I'm good thanks. How are you? Yes, I'm very well. I'm excited because today we are going to be discussing a very special anniversary. We're going to have a podcast dedicated to the 50th birthday of One Million Years BC, released in 1966. What you're about to hear is a clip taken from the 2012 documentary Ray Harryhausen Special Effects Titan. And this is Ray discussing some of the context and background behind his version of One Million Years BC. One Million BC is another matter. I I made that for Hammer Films. And uh, they bought the rights to a remake of it, a 1940 film with Victor Mature and Carol Landis. I don't like retakes, basically, but uh, I felt we could do better than the original, where they used lizards with fins glued on their back, and they had a, a Tyrannosaurus with a man in a rubber suit that looked so phony, they had to keep hiding it behind bushes. So all you saw was an eye or a a finger or something. So I, I wanted to change that uh, concept by using animation. Now, before we talk about our opinions and memories on this fantastic film, I'll recount a quick plot summary as found in the book An Animated Life by Ray Harryhausen. Tumac, played by John Richardson, a member of the aggressive rock people, is banished from the tribe and journeys across a harsh and uncompromising landscape encountering a giant lizard, a spider and a brontosaurus, before reaching the sea and collapsing on a beach. Living nearby are the gentle shell people, who come and rescue him from being crushed by an archelon, following which the beautiful Luana, played by Raquel Welsh, helps him to recover. One day an allosaurus invades the shell people's camp and it is Tumac who manages to kill the beast. Although the tribe are grateful, Tumac is banished again after he forcibly takes a spear. Accompanied by Luana, he makes his way back to his own tribe, but on the way they witness a terrible fight between a Triceratops and a Ceratosaurus, and they become separated. Eventually, they are reunited, and once they reach the rock people, Tumac and Luana try to educate them about farming. One day, Luana is carried off by a pterodon, and during a fight between two of the flying creatures, she is dropped into the sea. Although Tumac believes Luana has been killed, she manages to make her way back to her own people, and, after a nearby volcano erupts, wiping out most of them in a terrifying upheaval, the two tribes unite. I can't believe that this film's 50 years old. It's so iconic, and it's one of the first films that people mention when you, when you speak about Ray Harryhausen. What's the first thing that pops into your head when you think of One Million Years BC, John? 
Um, I suppose it's the um, it's, it's the it's the monster mashup, isn't it, of, of man and monsters. Um, scientists have said that you know there weren't dinosaurs around when man was around, and, and there certainly weren't fur bikinis. But um, it's kind of classic um, Saturday night entertainment in the seventies and eighties for people who remember Saturday night at the movies on BBC One. This was the type of film that would appeal to everyone because the dads have got the scantily clad um, Raquel Welch. The boys have got all of the monster stuff happening. So it was kind of a family pleaser for a long time. Um, but interestingly, for technical reasons, the film is seen less and less around. So there's, um, there's some controversy about what's happened to the film since it's been made and the fate of the film as it currently stands. So hopefully in this next half hour, we're going to be talking about that. And we've got some very exclusive clips of Ray Harryhausen himself talking for an unreleased uh, video audio commentary with one of the stars of the film, Martin Beswick. Yeah, it's fantastic, this uh, commentary that's been recorded, because it's great to see Ray speaking about the film after so many years and just remembering all of the all of the creatures that he animated during the films, all of the hardships that they had to endure during filming, but still, you know, still on occasions being slightly coy when when it comes to revealing his methods. He uh, he never liked to give away all his secrets, did he, John? No, he didn't, you know. And on One Million Years BC, perhaps more than any other film, Ray was out of his comfort zone because this film wasn't made with Charles Schneer, so it wasn't their usual producing partnership. He was, he was hired in, a gun for hire, as they used to call it in those days. So they were making a dinosaur movie. They needed somebody to do the special effects. They wanted stop-motion special effects. And the go-to guy at the time, of course, was Ray Harryhausen. Um, so Ray left his producer partnership. He was allowed to come across. Um, a deal was made. And he filmed on what was a pretty decent-sized budget. It was half a million pounds, which was the largest budget that Hammer Films had ever allowed for a film. And of course, it wasn't a horror film. It wasn't a Vincent Price Dracula epic. It was, as it seems, you know, it was a, a cave girl movie. It went on to be the highest grossing Hammer film at the time with a whopping $8 million, which by today's standards might not seem like much. But if you think about half a million dollars returning $8 million, then that's a pretty impressive um, 16-fold increase. If you think of typical films that cost two or three hundred million dollars today, you know, if they return a uh, four or five fold increase, it's considered to be box office gold. So really, at the time, this was an outstanding box office success. But um, there are reasons why I think Ray might not be entirely happy to repeat the experience. And when the opportunity came along for When Dinosaurs Ruled the Earth, it was a lower budget. Ray decided it wasn't for him. Um, if we look at some of the sequences in One Million Years BC, surprisingly, we have a live-action lizard. Um, I think it's an iguana. Now, the film had originally been made in 1940s, in Hollywood, in 1940. And it was mostly using um, creatures that existed in nature. And they were magnified and appeared on screen, superimposed. And they looked okay. And some people thought Ray did it as an homage to those films. No, my understanding, and when Ray discussed the film with us, he told us that he thought by starting with a creature from the real world might actually get people more comfortable with the lesser 
um, puppets, stop motion creatures. But unfortunately, under the very bright lights, the iguanas started to kind of fall asleep. So the sequences never quite worked out the way he wanted them to. But what do you think, Connor, of seeing a, a very sort of obvious superimposed lizard in one of those opening sequences? I think I know that Ray wasn't 100% happy with using the live creatures in the long run. Um, it was a decision he came to regret in later years, but I think it actually works quite well. I think when you see the lizard on screen, and bearing in mind this is in 1966, there's a certain blurring of of the animation and of reality. Um, so later creatures, you may start to think, is that a real one? How did he, how did he achieve this effect? So there, it does work. Um, I think it's made to work. I think perhaps filming with the live iguana was a more frustrating experience than he may have anticipated. Now, I was looking through the archive recently for photos from 1 million years BC, and I found a picture of this iguana on uh, lying on a table next to measuring tape because they obviously had to check the size of it for scale. Um, so we've got... We've got some more more behind the scene creature footage of this of this uh, very unlikely looking Ray Harryhausen monster. I think the with the with the tongue which grabs Tumac, I think it works. You know, it works better than than you might expect. Um, there's a tarantula sequence shortly afterwards which doesn't work quite as well. Having that mix of you know live live animals and stop motion creatures, it does give the film an otherworldly atmosphere. And that's the entire film, from the landscapes to the creatures involved to the complete lack of dialogue in the film. It does give the abstract and otherworldly feel. So, so the giant iguana adds to that for all of the disappointment that it may have caused Ray in later years uh, and slight regret. I think I think it works well, and it is just a short sequence. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And uh, and and during this podcast, we're going to cut to Ray and Martin Beswick discussing various sequences that uh, that Connor is talking about there. We yeah. used, uh, they wanted to use live lizards to save animation. And of course, this was double printed. Yes, they would fall asleep under the hot lights. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the way you photograph it. We photograph it very close up. It's interesting though, even though Ray was a fish out of water on this production, Don Chafee was in the director's chair, the director of Jason and the Argonauts. And uh, Wilkie Cooper was the uh, the cinematographer. So there were people around. He, he wasn't completely isolated. But I think the issue for me, and I, and I think for Ray as well, there was a pressure of time because the people at Hammer had never made a major special effects movie with stop-motion animation. Charles Schneer knew all about it, had great success with Ray, so could create what's called a workflow that's allowed for some filming of the live action, then waiting a considerable time, maybe a year or more, before release in cinemas. Hammer weren't as patient, and I don't think quite understood the workflow. So in the final scene of the film, and I'm jumping forward a bit here, but it's just as an example, um, there was going to be a brontosaurus attack on the cavemen, but that was abandoned in favour of the earthquake sequence that actually happens. So in a, in a single sort of script editing stroke, they managed to remove maybe several months' worth of animation and, and thus get them back on course in terms of their release schedule. So I think that was frustrating for Ray. You can see in some of the sequences they're not as nuanced, perhaps, and as complex as other Harryhausen films that bookend this particular film. So I think it was great that Ray did it. It's not an experience he 
he wanted to repeat, or indeed did repeat, for when Dinosaurs Rule the Earth came along. But um, I think there's some great sequences in here. You know, they're, they're iconic, you know, from the, the, the bat wings he put on his pteranodons um, to the, all of the scenes with the, um, the giant turtle. Um, it's not called a giant turtle, it's an archelon, isn't it? You, you've had um, some fun looking up some of these creatures, haven't you, Connor? The Brontosaurus itself, it's almost like a teaser. It's a sneak peek. The Brontosaurus is only on screen for a few seconds, but that's the first stop-motion creature in the film. And it does make you hungry for more. You do kind of wish that that scene at the end still existed. But we have the storyboards for it. We have the storyboards for the original scene where the Brontosaurus was going to poke his head into the into the cave and terrorise the cave people as they're trying to escape from the earthquake. Um, I'll, de- I'll definitely post those up with the show notes here. Um, but the other creatures, um, I really like the Archelon, the giant turtle. And what I like, maybe it's unusual for a Ray Harryhausen film, I like how a lot of the creatures in the film are ambivalent towards the human characters. You know, the Brontosaurus is just marching through, minding his own business. The Archelon is just trying to get back into the sea and is inadvertently going to crush Tumac, who's been knocked out. And that, I think that's great. You know, the, these aren't malicious creatures, many of them. They're, they're, they don't care about the humans, and the humans are, are basically fighting for survival and fighting for scraps amongst these giant beasts. Um, and I, I th- again, I think this adds to the otherworldly atmosphere. So the Archelon is, is just a gentle giant who you're trying to direct towards the sea, and uh, it's a fantastic, yet another fantastic Grey Harryhausen creature. Because of the lizard that we just spoke about previously, some people actually think the Archelon, or at the time, thought the, that the Archelon was a real turtle as well. But no, it's a huge fiberglass shell, still in great condition within the collection, and manoeuvring that heavy creature is, is yet another glimpse into, into Ray's genius when it came to animating creatures of all shapes and sizes. I think you're right, you know, rather than them being malevolent monsters, these are animals that are being observed and when we kind of fast forward nearly 50 years later and Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park came along, much was made of the fact that this is not a monster movie, this is much more like a safari movie. So how would these creatures behave in their natural environments? Well, if it's a, a vegesaurus, as they're called, um, the vegetarian creatures, then they would get along doing what they need to do. And similarly for the um, T-Rex and for the velociraptors, were they pack animals? Did they did they attack in herds and so on? It was very much the um, the language of of the safari. But you know, I think you're right, Connor. You know, Ray was there certainly before the people that made Jurassic Park in in presenting them as animals rather than than malevolent monsters. Um, but you know, Ray came in for criticism. We've we've got a clip here of Ray chatting in the documentary I made when I was at film school, where he got some criticism over his pteranodons. I've gotten letters from little five-year-olds saying that I'm in error because my pteranodons have bat wings and not regular wings. So it shows that even five-year-olds remember what they see in the museum. But we have to put those uh, additions, as I said before, in for a certain purpose. In order to make the wings look like they're full of air, I have taken the liberty of putting bat wings on my pteranodons. So... uh, uh, the average person, I don't think, questions that when you see a film. Maybe a professor would, but I don't think the average person, as long as the effect on the screen is important. But the basic uh, overall pattern 
we try to get as accurate as possible. So as you heard there, Ray was saying that he was making these films not for um, professors, but for the people that would write to him, for his fans. And I think that's always the balance. You know, Ray was certainly a consummate artist and he would look into anatomies, but um, ultimately what he's making is, is some showbiz magic. So that sort of vaudevillian side of him, I suppose, was always in, I wouldn't say in conflict, but within balance with that side of him, which was the draftsman and the person who wants to be accurate and correct. So that balance has, has paid off, I think. You know, the criticisms that were quite loud at the time for the film have certainly died away. But um, I think the new controversy now about this film, and certainly it's a controversy that I've looked into in, in some detail in the last couple of years, is the fact that, shockingly, the original camera negative for One Million Years BC no longer exists, and the interpositive from which prints are created no longer exists. How shocking is that, Connor? That, um, uh, what's perceived to be a major Hollywood movie has thrown out its original film elements. It's such a shame and it's such a loss and uh, it's almost unthinkable, I guess maybe just because of the kind of environment that we work in and the kind of person who Ray was. Uh, you know, Ray never threw anything away, he kept everything and you know we have some fantastic material because of that. So the idea that you would throw something like that away, something so important and such a, such a popular film as well, it, it seems like a crime. Um, I don't know how something like that would come about. Was this for storage reasons, John, or was this for just uh, at the time reasons of expediency? Well, it's um, it's a bit of everything. I mean, what what's happened is the other films that Ray made, he made with Columbia Pictures, with Warner Brothers, with MGM. All of those companies, to a large extent, still exist and are probably larger today than they ever were. But certainly, in the case of Columbia and Warner Brothers, so they have all the original elements and they have vast vaults where they keep everything. Hammer Films, however, went out of business, came back into business, went out of business again. And much like other film companies in the UK like Rank and London Films, if a copy of a print, which is what would be projected in your cinema, hasn't been kept in, in good condition, then the chances are the negative from which your prints are struck from won't be in a good condition if it hasn't been looked after. If a company goes into liquidation, the vast archive they have of films and negatives have to be paid for by someone to stay in storage. Now, unless somebody's going to pay off their own back for something they don't own and don't own the copyright for, um, then there's no reason why they would stay around. And of course, in those days, films were considered much more disposable than they are today. So partly for storage reasons, partly because the company no longer exists, why would you hold on to the negatives when there's plenty of prints around and maybe there's an interpositive? So the assumption that the film must be somewhere has led to the destruction of the original camera negative, the original interpositives, and the Blu-ray release, which should have come out in December 2015, um, has been delayed and delayed. Studio Canal apparently are going to release one this month, I'd be interested to see which original elements they're going to use because the best possible element is the original camera negative and then the interpositive. You're taking a big step down in generation when you're looking at prints that have been used in cinemas. They're not as sharp. They often have scratches and 
a sort of a wobbly gait because they've been used so often. So this film has effectively been lost for many years, with television now turning HD. Without a HD scan of 1 million years BC, it will be seen less and less on television. All of Ray's Columbia films have been remastered fabulously for high definition and look fantastic. Even earlier films, such as The Mighty Joe Young and The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, they're in HD, they look fabulous. This is the one sticking point. This film, its original sound elements as well as its original picture elements are gone, so it would be very hard to produce a decent 5.1 stereo mix. Um, and then there's a the controversy around the cuts. The European cut was 10 minutes or so longer than the US cut, that had about 8 to 9 minutes removed partly because of um, the fight sequences and the violence and to make it available to a bigger and therefore younger audience, mm. but also because if you can make the film as near to 90 minutes as possible, it's cheaper in lab time producing prints. Theatres prefer that because if they're tacking adverts on the front and they want to get screenings during the day, and of course younger audiences won't really sit still in those days for more than 90 minutes. So... I'm hoping the Blu-ray, when it does come to us this year, if it comes to us this year, is the longer version, and it's in as good a condition as possible. And we've had many requests from people who want to show One Million Years BC, and they said, oh, we don't have a print, there isn't a print available to show, is there a HD version we can show? And unfortunately, there isn't. And it's, it's an increasing problem for smaller films that don't have the legacy of major Hollywood studios. Um... They just disappear. And, you know, the same is true of, for example, Straw Dogs, the Sam Peckinpah film from the 70s. The original Cameron Egg and the interpositive for those, gone. As to Cabaret, the Lisa Minnelli musical. So these are recent enough films. You wouldn't expect them to be lost. But um, it's unfortunate for this film. And I think it deserves, it deserves a wider screening. And I'm hoping that there'll be an exciting HD release later this year. It's it's a shame and it's so ironic as well because actually a lot of the models from the film are in are in great condition, um, still within the archive. A few of them had some restoration work carried out on them in recent years by the Foundation's official conservator, Alan Friswell. So the Brontosaurus and the Allosaurus are looking fantastic. They look as good as new. And we still have the Archelon, of course. We have a, a miniature Raquel Welsh who was picked up by the Pterodon, which again looks fantastic. Um, the only casualty that I can recall is the Triceratops, which was sadly decapitated and mounted, but we still have his head, so it's, it's very well represented within the collection. Um, and in terms of the storyboards that I mentioned previously, we also have some of Ray's most fantastically striking storyboards, where he would go on location and use some of the location photography in Lanzarote, and draw on top of it. So he would draw the dinosaurs and the giant lizards and the cave people and everything else on top of this photography. And it's so striking. It's, it's really like incredible as artwork in itself. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly got Ray Harryhausen's stamp on it. I think one of the other unusual things is the, uh, is the score on the film as well. Um, the score is by uh, Mario... Uh, and I've always wondered how to pr pronounce this, and I'm sure someone's going to tell me as we get this wrong, Mario uh, Nisimbin. Um, and his score is quite um, ethnic in places. 
it's it's quite avant-garde as well. When you think about the types of scores that would be in films in the 60s and 70s and sort of more standardised orchestral pieces from the likes of Bernard Herrmann and Miklos Rocha, this is um, quite an interesting score. Um, but on, on the same issue of missing film elements, there's only been one CD release for this on the Legends label, which is now... Um, which has now been deleted, and the sound quality is isn't great. I mean, it's um, there are older films which have better sound quality on their scores that have been released to CD. So it really is across the board. This film's been sort of let down in terms of its storage and archive, but it's it's a wonderful score. It's quite evocative. You will have heard some of it here on the opening of this episode. Um, I would I would urge you to try and track down copies of it and have a listen. Uh, he went on to score Mario did the. Um, the sequel as well, um, when dinosaurs rule the earth. Have Have you seen that film, Connor? No, I haven't seen that one. I've only seen the uh, the Ray Harryhausen version. Um, but I agree with you about the I agree with you about the score. It's very stark. It's quite uh, abstract and percussive. Um, while I was preparing for this episode, I had a copy of it in in my car. And uh, I gave my friend a lift somewhere and uh, he had to ask, he said, what, what on earth are you listening to? And I explained it was uh, from a dinosaur film, but out of context, it did sound pretty strange. Um, but no, I, I agree. Um, like this, this, it just adds to this, the special nature. And again, all the, all the things that you've described definitely mark this out as a, a bit of an outlier in the Ray Harryhausen catalogue, despite being one of his most well-known films. Uh, I didn't see any of the Hammer follow-ups to this film. I know that the first sequel contained dinosaurs by Jim Danforth, and the second sequel didn't contain any dinosaurs at all, which is a real shame. Um, I guess they really misjudge why people were coming to watch these movies. And I did go back and watch the uh, the 1940 original as well. Um, I can't say that that really could be recommended as a great film, but the gem of a good idea was there. Um, obviously good enough for, for Ray and the people at Hammer to look back and say, actually, you know, there's something we can work with here. Um, and it's just, um, I guess, the legacy of movie dinosaurs, which is important here. They're maybe not, by paleontology standards, absolutely correct, but dating back all the way through to Willis O'Brien's The Lost World in 1925, all the way to here and now with Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, Dinosaurs in movies have never been 100% anatomically correct. People want to see movie dinosaurs. They don't really want to see dinosaurs covered in feathers. I know it causes some controversy amongst paleontologists to say, oh, that's not accurate, but the public want the public want Ray Harryhausen's Allosaurus and uh, Willis O'Brien's T-Rex. That's, that's really the image in their mind when they go and see a dinosaur film. Absolutely. You know, when we think about dinosaur films... And certainly when there's documentaries on and when Jurassic Park came out, it harked back to these sequences. And in fact, there's, there's a sequence in um, the original Jurassic Park where the T-Rex is, is, is suddenly appears in this field and, and bites this tiny little dinosaur. And it's reminiscent, it's an homage to the sequence in the Valley of Guanji when Guanji himself um, grabs this little uh, gallimimo as it's running through. So it's a, it's a direct homage and I think to the credit of Steven Spielberg and today's filmmakers, you know, they do recognise the influence that Ray had because, of course, he was working very much in a vacuum. There was nobody else you could compare what he was doing to and with. Nowadays, we talk about the films of 
you know, Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg, George Lucas and Jim Cameron. And of course, they have different styles and techniques, but they're working in, in, a, in a similar genre. Whereas when Ray was making his films, despite the fact there was a sequel or two to One Million Years BC, you know, uh, Dave Allen and Jim Danforth, who were excellent animators, never managed to reach the dizzy heights of Ray's career. Um, and not for want of talent. These were very talented people, for sure. But um, I think Ray had an eye, not just to technique, but to what audiences wanted and could see beyond just the special effects sequence. He could see how you could round out in entertainment. Introducing the fabulous Raquel Welch, the sensational star discovery of this or any other year in one million years B.C. See her as Loana the Fair One, who deserted her tribe and risked her life to follow Tumac of the Rock People. And of course, the iconic poster, that poster in itself adorned many a, a bedroom wall for a teenage boys in the, in the sort of um, 60s and 70s and 80s. And of course, is famously in the, the Shawshank Redemption as well, Connor. Yeah, used to, used to hide the tunnel, uh, the escape tunnel in the Shawshank Redemption. So a very, very iconic poster uh, of Raquel Welsh. Um, and her role, she's... She's fantastic in this film. So striking and obviously very, very good looking. Um, I know that her fur bikini probably caused a bit of a bit of an uproar in the nineteen sixties, but um, I think her her performance is really good in this film. I know that in later years she perhaps distanced herself a little, but it's something I I can understand um, or empathise with in that you see it happening quite a lot when, for example, a rock band that think they're cool suddenly have this huge hit single, they often try and distance themselves from it. Or if a comedian sees himself as edgy and then has a hit sitcom, you can see them trying to distance themselves. Perhaps Raquel Welsh was concerned about being typecast in these kind of fantasy stroke sci-fi films. And, you know, she was she was quite young at the time, maybe made, made efforts to distance herself from that to ensure that her career in Hollywood was taken more seriously. In later years, she seems to have consoled with the fact that it was the film that launched her career. And to her credit, she never had a bad word to say about Ray Harryhausen or the special effects at all. She's always acknowledged that they were fantastic and that Ray was a genius. And Ray himself didn't have a bad word to say about Raquel. He found her very pleasant to work with and very dedicated towards her acting craft. Although Ray told me a bit of a naughty story about Miss Welch, which I will share now with our podcast listeners, he said that um, the film, of course, is shot not in order, not in story order, so the continuity on different days is, um, is always different. It's only when you edit it together you put it in the story order. So he said to me that um, you know Miss uh, Welch would complain about the fur bikini, and I thought, because perhaps it was too small, oh no, Ray would say to me in his booming voice, no, she would take a pair of... Um, small scissors and cut away the fur bikini so in some sequences in the film it's like she's put it in a high high um, temperature wash it's shrunk so she was trying to make it smaller and smaller so in later years when she talks about the film kind of objectified her and the female form she actually um, in a sense accelerated that by actually trying to give herself a smaller bikini fur bikini um, but it's quite common for actors and any performers to distance themselves from something which they're so well known for. And again, you can empathise with the sentiment because if you're trying to do something else, you don't want to be remembered for 
another role or another sequence or something else you're well known for. Um, but that's part of public life, I think. You know, if you make a big impact in public life, it makes it then harder for you to make a big impact again in public life for something that's not the same thing. So she, of course, went on to great success in other films. The one I most remember her in is um, The Fantastic Voyage, which feels like it could have been a Ray Harryhausen film. Big studio picture, shrinking people to the size of an atom and being injected into a scientist's brain. If you haven't seen Fantastic Voyage, track it down. It's a brilliant movie. Um, that feels like it could have been, as I say, a Ray Harryhausen film. Well, we've got a clip here taken from the commentary, and this is Martine Beswick discussing the famous cave girl fight which took place between herself and Raquel Welsh. Have a listen to this. Nupondi the wild one, whom no man could resist. I'd already done uh, From Russia With Love. And so I was now termed battling Beswick. <laughs> Is that it again? Uh, you look like you really mean it. <laughs> well, it's interesting because what happened was that they brought these doubles onto the set and we're sitting on our chairs and we're not happy about it. And we're sitting there and they bring these doubles on and they don't look anything like us. In fact, they're quite heavy, fat people. <laughs> <laughs> and the two of us just looked at each other and went, oh, no. no. And we said, we can do it. We did, because the thing is that both of us dance. Both of us are dancers. Yes. And so we just knew that we could do it. And this is when we absolutely, totally agreed and went for it. Many of the actors that have appeared in Ray's films have gone on to, to some success. Others haven't. But I don't think it's... Um, anything but a plus to have on your CV that you've appeared in a Ray Harryhausen film. And of course, Martine Beswick, who we've heard throughout this episode, she was um, very successful as a Bond girl as well, wasn't she, Connor? Yes, she was. And she she falls into the other category of of actors and actresses that appeared in race films in that she really embraced her, her role in One Million Year one million years BC in later years. And she obviously recorded the commentary with uh, with yourself and Ray um, back in back in two thousand and twelve, and her her I think her role in this is fantastic as well. She plays the the Nupondi, the wild cave girl, who is the the brunette, the opposite of uh, of Raquel Welsh's character. And I quite like the rivalry in this film. Uh, there's obviously the uh, the cave girl fight, which I think might have been one of the scenes that was edited out of the American version. Um, because perhaps it's a little too risky. It's either that or or Martine's dance in the film, where she does her, her kind of tribal dance for for all of the uh, elders of the um, the rock tribe. But I really like the scene where where Luana Raquel Welch's character is picked up by the pterodon and is is flown off into the distance, and all the all the cavemen go chasing after her. Martine Beswick's character has such a funny look on her face when it happens, a satisfied smirk that her rival is uh, going to be eaten by some pterodactyls. I think, I think it brings a lot, of, uh, a lot of character to the film, and I say it's great that she still wants to be involved with, uh, with commemorative events related to the film all these years later. Um, so sh- she's fantastic in it as well. She is. She's a, she's a really special lady. She's famously a Bond girl as well, so when she goes to conventions, she has... Um, as it were, double amount of fans, which she's, she's quite entitled to. Um, when, we, when we look at kind of the, the pantheon of, of Ray's collection of films, to give our viewers a bit of a context, 
The two films Ray made before One Million Years BC were Jason the Argonauts in 1963 and then First Men in the Moon in 1964. So One Million Years was quite a gear change to go back to the prehistoric world, but then Ray's very next film, 1969, was the unmade and unrealised Willis O'Brien project, The Valley of Gwangi. So going straight back to the dinosaurs and... That was with Charles Schneer. It was with Warner Brothers and Seven Arts. And interestingly, Seven Arts were one of the distributors for One Million Years BC when it was um, when it had its American release. So I wonder if there was some kind of interesting deal that was done there because, in a sense, Valley of Guanji is Ray's sequel to One Million Years BC and that he was his next picture. And it had dinosaurs in it and a pretty lady in a cowgirl outfit. Yeah, well, Guanji, I think, is a really interesting one because it was one of Willis O'Brien's unrealised projects. And obviously, O'Brien was was Ray's mentor. And it obviously meant quite a lot to Ray to to be able to carry out his his predecessor's wishes and unrealised dreams. Um, And I guess the producers must have thought they'd struck gold with one million years BC because Guanji's fantastic. And, And Ray commented on this. He mentions that People often associate him with dinosaur films, but really his dinosaur period was the mid to late 60s. He did those two films. Um, and aside from, you know, the earlier 50s Monsters on the Rampage films, that was it in terms of big dinosaur related releases. Um, but they obviously had such an impact. They sunk into people's brains that often when you mention Ray's name, people go, oh, of course, dinosaurs, one million years BC, Guanji. And, um, you know, Guanji, I think, is probably the biggest fan favourite. It's the one I hear fans speaking about the most. It's just a, a, such a beloved film. People have so, so many happy memories of that one. Now, in terms of the casting, just going back on uh, Raquel Welsh, I don't know, because I've, I've not discussed this with Ray, so I don't know how true this is, but according to Wikipedia, so it must be true, originally Hammer yeah. offered the role of uh, Leona to Ursula Andres, the... Uh, the Bond girl from Doctor No, but when Miss Andres passed on the project due to commitments and salary demands, a search for a replacement resulted in the selection of Raquel Welch. So, um, of course, Ray got to work with Ursula Andres on uh, Clash of the Titans. But interesting, if that's true, it's on Wikipedia, so I'm hoping it is true. And that's uh, an interesting casting decision. I think I've seen that too in one of the books as well. I think... uh... I've read that story as well, and that would have been, I suppose, Ursula Andress was at the height of her powers in the in the mid sixties after Doctor No had come out. Um, another icon in a bikini from from that era that people remember so strongly. Um, but it's nice all these ties that that the uh, that Ray's films have with other films of that era and people that went on to appear in other iconic roles. Of course, Caroline Monroe, who was in the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, appeared in The Spy Who Loved Me. As as Naomi, who was like the the bad Bond girl in that film, and there's you know there's all these all these links interwoven in and out, and it's nice that Ursula Andress was eventually able to appear in Clash of the Titans as Aphrodite, and what an appropriate role for her. Yes, no, exactly, exactly. Now, as we kind of round this up, and we're coming to the end, it's worth discussing the end of the film because an interesting choice was made at the end of One Million Years BC, and that was the film goes to black and white, or in some prints, a kind of sepia tone. Now, 
there's some debate as to whether that was filmed in colour and they decided to go with a black and white sequence when they were processing and printing because of course you can film in colour and print in black and white you can't do it the other way around you can't film in black and white and print in colour what what did you think of that end sequence um, Connor because it's quite a that's quite a bold move people are paying to see a colour film remember most people have black and white tellies at home they're not paying for a, for a black and white film this is advertised as a colour feature film and then it drops out. I, I mean, I didn't. I guess I hadn't thought of it like that because uh, I don't remember black and white TV. I'm sorry. I guess it, it never occurred to me that people would be going to the cinema specifically to see colour films. I think it was an interesting move, and it's one of several moves in this film that I think are quite clever and quite bold artistically. Um, as we've discussed, the soundtrack and the bleak landscape and the fact that there's basically no dialogue in the film at all. To finish with this kind of bleak ending, sepia tones slash black and white, I think I think it's I think it works quite well in my opinion. I know not everybody agrees. Um, having listened to your commentary, I don't think Ray was was quite as keen on it as I am, but I, th- I think it works quite well. I think as again, it adds to this uh, unusual atmosphere in the film in the final frames um, as as the earthquake has taken place. I suppose it doesn't end on a very hopeful feeling. You get the feeling that these uh, these cave people are going going to face an even bleaker world now that their their home has been destroyed and that there's volcanic ash in the air. Um, but an unusual move. Um, I wonder if it was for artistic reasons or whether it was maybe slightly more misguided. What, what's your opinion on it, John? Well, I think because the end was was rearranged because of this whole timeline thing we talked about, you, you've discovered all of these wonderful storyboards for the final sequence, the final fights, and they decided, no, we'll just have a just an earthquake. It's a spectacular earthquake. But um, I quite like it. I, I like the idea that setting it in black and white almost sets the film in a historical context. So for cinema goers at the time, Technicolor and seeing films in colour, always at the cinema... Um, was still a relatively new experience. You know, when I speak to older people that went to the cinema, they'd say, oh, I'll check to see if it's colour first. I'm not paying all that money. I've got a black and white television at home. So it would make a difference. People would want to know if your favourite film star was in it and if it was in colour. Um, much in the same way children might ask if it's in 3D when they're going to see um, Angry Birds or something. So f- for that reason, I think it was very brave. I think it really works. And, and what it's reminiscent of for me, um, in 1968, Stanley Kubrick released 2001 A Space Odyssey. And when we think of those graphic sequences of the dawn of man in the opening, which are spectacular, and the very eerie sounds, think again about the opening of this film um, for the landscape sequences. I wonder if Mr Kubrick had seen One Million Years B.C., well, he'd definitely seen it because some of the stock footage from One Million Years BC was used in A Clockwork Orange, I believe. So there's definitely some influence there. And I suppose that this adds to the perception that that race film One Million Years BC is, is slightly underrated because people sometimes snigger when, when you mention it and say, oh, dinosaurs and bikinis. But the way that it was shot, that it is quite... Quite um, leaves quite an imprint. This stark landscape of prehistoric people struggling for survival. I I wouldn't be surprised if Mr. Kubrick had watched it and it had helped to maybe help him settle the tone for some of his seminal movies. 
I think so. You know, I think, as, as you say, people have a nod and a wink when they think of of girls rolling around, cave girls fighting. But when you strip that away, Ray's film is a, is a technical achievement. It has attained iconic pop cultural significance. Whether we all agree that or not, that's a fact. And so Mr Kubrick, who was working in, in, a, in a different genre, if you like, I think will have seen the film, will have been influenced by what he saw as some very realistic landscapes on uh, on Lanzarote it, it looks spectacular so when he shot those background plates the front projection plates for the Dawn of Man sequence I think you know Mr Kubrick would have had an eye to Ray's film and Ray would have been quite tickled by that had we had um, much more internet at the time and much more social media I think it would have been more obvious but of course studios were very guarded filmmakers didn't talk about projects so we'll, we'll never really know about that but um you know, in terms of what you were just saying, Connor, about Bond girls and, and, and the links to other films, uh, did you know that Stanley Kubrick advised uh, Cubby Broccoli and Lewis Gilbert on how to light the submarine stage on the brand new 007 stage at Pinewood for the Spy Who Loved Me sequence, where that enormous tanker swallowed up all of the submarines? So in that final uh, big battle with uh, Roger Moore in that film, it was Stanley Kubrick who advised the cinematographer on that picture how to light it practically so that they could actually get a definition on their Panavision cameras. So there are photographs of Stanley Kubrick walking around the newly built 007 stage giving that advice. So he was clearly a man interested in all parts of cinema and was very interested in, in the Bond franchise. Well, that I didn't know that, but that's very interesting. Stanley Kubrick such an enigma. I don't want to go too much off topic, but uh, I recently watched the documentary film Room 237, which is about conspiracy theories relating to The Shining and all the all of the hidden meanings that supposedly Kubrick added to his films. And it is fascinating. Um, maybe take it with a pinch of salt, but he was involved in so many interesting aspects of the movie industry. To hear that he was involved in James Bond as well as, as everything else that he did... Um, what an interesting man, and he was a Ray Harryhausen fan by all accounts, or certainly had a, had a, an inkling to be influenced by One Million Years BC. It's a question I would have asked Mr Kubrick had I had the chance to meet him when I was Vice Chair of the Directors Guild in 1999. Um, the Guild had honoured Mr Kubrick with a Lifetime Achievement Award, which he'd had accepted. So we were planning to visit him at his house with the awards committee, um, and this was uh, shortly after the release of Wise Eyed Shut. And uh, two weeks before we were due to pop down to the house to meet him and he, his lovely wife, uh, he sadly passed away. So um, a great shame not to have met the man. And I'm sure had I had the chance, he would have possibly confirmed that he was a Ray Harryhausen fan. Well, one man who definitely is a Ray Harryhausen fan um, celebrates his 70th birthday this year with Steven Spielberg, so there'll be some celebrations relating to him re- reaching that landmark age. And if you think about it, that means that he was about 19 when this film came out, so you can just see the influence there. A 19-year-old young filmmaker, obviously Steven Spielberg was from a very young age dedicated to his craft. Um, you can just imagine him in 1966 watching this film and just making notes because obviously years later he made the most successful dinosaur franchise of all time in Jurassic Park. 
he did indeed. I mean, it's it's just it's fabulous and it's iconic in its, in its own right. So what have we got coming up for our next episode? Have we, have we got any plans in place? Yes, we are going to release a very special episode coming up. As everybody will know, June the 29th represents Ray's birthday. Ray would have been 96 years old this year. So to mark that occasion, we're going to record a very special interview with Ray's daughter, Vanessa, who is also a trustee with the Foundation. Uh, Now, Vanessa has probably the most unique insight into Ray's life and work of anybody else in the world. She really just has so many memories and stories. Every time that I speak to Vanessa, she has an interesting story about her father. She's very proud of his work and very passionate about promoting his legacy. We're looking for fan questions. I know people are very interested in what Vanessa has to say for the reasons I've just mentioned. So if anybody has any questions for Vanessa Harryhausen, please contact us either through Twitter or Facebook or through the Foundation website. And we'll be sure to field your questions to her because this is going to be a must-listen episode. It's going to be fascinating. She's a very interesting lady and has just the most incredible tales about her parents and the I suppose the unique upbringing that she had, um, living with living with all of the creatures, which she described as her brothers and sisters. Absolutely, yes. And we recorded a couple of years ago a very special commentary with her father for the Valley of Guanji because uh, Vanessa was on set at the time. So I think um, we've 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 come to the end of our very special anniversary edition of One Million Years BC. And I think Connor, we should give the last word to the great man himself, to uh, to Ray Harryhausen. And so, until I see you all again for the next episode, thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. We have to do a great deal of research with uh, prehistoric animals because most children have studied them in school. And we uh, have to refer to books that are written by prominent scientists. Charles R. Knight, for example, I use a great deal. And here's an example of some uh, prehistoric restorations. And then we start actually from the skeleton, the basic skeleton to plan the armature for the uh, rubber models. This type of armature has to be inside the rubber model to enable it to uh, function. And then we go to the museums and and actually see the skeletons and and try to develop our animals uh, in a way that uh, they're well known from the museum point of view. See the fascinating, strange, and fearful creatures who roamed and ruled the earth a million years BC. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2016. Not since time began has the primitive scene been captured for the screen with such imaginative realism. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. You will share the unending thrills and excitement of a world of primitive wonders, of primeval terror and savagery. You will indeed live in another world. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. You will indeed live in another world, in another time, as the centuries fall back to reveal the Earth one million years B.C. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com, where you can also find our Facebook and Twitter links.